0: Today I am interviewing someone named Effie Kolopoulos and she has some amazing advice to share about how to become an advocate. And when you get diagnosed with something like rheumatoid arthritis, you have to learn how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments, but also you can engage in some larger scale advocacy efforts like through the Arthritis Foundation or other large entities that help with legislative advocacy at like the national and state level, which is really, really fascinating. So Effie shares her own personal journey and we both discussed instances where we learned how to advocate better for ourselves as patients. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi Effie, thank you so much for coming on the Arthritis Life podcast today. Thank you for having me. Can we just... Start off by having you tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, your age and a little bit about your diagnosis journey. Yeah, so I'm 33.
1: I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at 18 years old. For a few years prior to that, I was experiencing symptoms, but doctors sort of wrote it off as growing pains and nothing really serious. So it wasn't until three years from me experiencing symptoms around 15, 16 till I was diagnosed at 18 and I didn't start treatment until then. So I think that impacted my outcome as well, as they do say that the first two years are very crucial in starting a regimen, whether that be medication, dietary lifestyle changes, whatever that is. So I also got a second opinion at Mayo Clinic they confirmed that my diagnosis was actually juvenile idiopathic polyarticular arthritis, but I usually tend to not know which way to go at times because some doctors say, well, you were diagnosed at 18. So it's technically rheumatoid arthritis. Now others are like, well, you started having symptoms as a younger teenager and it's technically juvenile arthritis. So I tend to just say rheumatoid arthritis for the sake of
0: all that, but that's pretty much
1: my story. In regards to how I was diagnosed.
0: Nice. And what's like a typical day in the life for you these days?
1: These days, I'm doing pretty well on the medication I'm on. I'm currently on methotrexate. I was taking prednisone. I did wean off that. However, I take it sporadically. Now I had some flares and I'm just trying to find my little avenue of if I'm going to add in something else or not. I'm in limbo right now with testing and all that. So mm-hmm. see how that goes. And yeah, I, I freelance right and I work part
0: time. That's great. A lot of times, people ask me like how to cope with like being a student, like in college or high school, while balancing, you know, having RA. Do you have any tips for that? I think the best thing for me was to reach out to my learning
1: center and mm. ask for assistance, and they were pretty good about you coming in and talking to them about your needs. So at one point, I had a note taker. I had them give me like a recorder. So I use those tools for a little bit and talking to my professors before college started. If I already knew my schedule in advance, I would email them a week before school and just tell them my situation. And then also I tried to plan my schedule to be really fluid. So I was a commuter student. I didn't live on campus ever. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted my schedule to be easy. So I went Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, or I would not recommend this. I went Tuesday and Thursday all day at one point, like morning to night, because I didn't want to commute the other days. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's just finding a schedule for you and spreading things out and also not feeling the pressure to graduate on time. You know, I know many colleges are in the quarter system or semester. My school is on quarter systems.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So we had shorter breaks in between and longer winter breaks. So if you have to graduate a year later or quarter later, semester later, it's okay. You know, because you don't want to fail in your classes, you don't want to do poorly. Because I remember my last semester of college, I got like a B minus or a C in one class, but I was so tired. I pushed myself a little too much.
0: That takes a long time for many patients to figure out, you know, what is that balance of, you know, can I do a full day versus a half day versus three quarters? So I think those are a lot of practical tips, giving yourself rest days in between school days, potentially in the long run of your life. You know, when you're 40 years old, you're not going to look back and wish that you had graduated in four years versus four and a half or five like if it takes a little longer that makes sense to just give yourself that breathing room
1: yeah it doesn't really matter and I know when I graduated back in 2009 the market for jobs wasn't Uh, that great either we were in you know a bit of a recession at the time so I feel like even if I did graduate a year later it wouldn't have mattered you know
0: yeah yeah (laughs) one of the things that I admire about you from seeing your social media is that you're such a strong and passionate advocate and I know that for a lot of us, you know, it's a journey towards learning how to become an advocate. Not everyone is like, I get diagnosed. And then one week later, like I'm going to advocate for myself. So I'd love to know like time, ta- a few examples of when you've had to advocate for yourself in your journey.
1: When I first started out, obviously the rheumatologist would test you for certain things and I just went along with it. But I didn't really ask many questions. Eventually was tested for Lyme four times. Oh. Lyme disease that is. Yeah. Because I, when I was a teenager, I was in a lot of woodsy areas. I did go camping a lot, canoe trips. So that was a concern for me as I started talking to more functional doctors and nutritionists who were well versed in Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And I was tested. It came back negative each time. So eventually. And I just let it go. I just accepted that I have rheumatoid arthritis and that was it because it was a little bit of an anxiety for me Mm -hmm. to know that maybe something else could be going on as we know that people are often misdiagnosed, right? Yes. So I started more on a journey of investigating and answering like my own questions and asking doctors questions because sometimes I feel that is needed as a patient. You need to know what the tests they are running are all about so when i found a rheumatologist who would literally sit there with me on my appointment and point out everything that was you know going on with my test that was really helpful for me so speaking up about what the test results were all about and what their meanings were helped me as a patient and my family members understand what was really going on, and why they were prescribing medication. Lately, for example, my hormones have been a little off. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned to my rheumatologist, hey, can we test my cortisol? Or can we test my estrogen and my progesterone levels as I'm, you know, I'm an older adult now, so Mm -hmm. I know more about these things rather than when I was younger, they would always tell me, well, you're too young for those type of tests. But I don't think I necessarily was because hormones play a big role as a teenager as well as we know, right? Puberty, Mm -hmm. menstrual cycles as young adults and women. I feel that was something I've really learned to
0: speak up about. That makes a lot of sense. Patients are the experts in their own experience and in their own care because you're the one that has to live with it on a daily basis. I I was I so know I was 20, and I had a similar experience where it, like at that point when you're kind of a late teen or early 20s, you don't necessarily see yourself as in charge of your care because you're kind of used to being treated as a younger person, so it does take a while. And it sounded like you had some experiences with having to advocate yourself when your NBREL was not being correctly filled. Can you elaborate on that story? Because it's a good one. It's a good one for advocacy, a bad experience. Yeah.
1: So this is one of my bad and ugly experiences, which is with rheumatoid arthritis. So in 2007, I was having a little bit of a flare and I was on Ember at the time. That was the only medication I was taking along with ibuprofen. So one week, the medicine didn't come on time to the pharmacy. I called them and I'm like, I'm in a flare. I don't have my injection for this Friday because I was doing it on the weekends at that time. And they were like, well, we don't have a refill from your doctor. But at this time I was on it for about three years and the pharmacy knew me, they knew my doctor. So it wasn't like I was a new patient or someone that they didn't know where they would probably need the information, you know, before they filled it. They tried getting in contact with my doctor. I tried to get in contact with them as well. I couldn't reach anyone. So I actually wasn't on Embryol for two weeks by the time it was given to me. And at that time, I just picked it up from the pharmacy because it was five minutes from my house. I didn't get it delivered. I didn't know what to do at that time. And my elbow was impacted after that, I think a little bit because I do have damage there now. And I noticed that moment in time when my elbow was flared, it kind of was the catalyst for more issues to come after that. So I eventually was able to get my medicine, (laughs) luckily. And- It was a scary time you know for me as well because that was the first time i was experiencing really bad swelling in my elbow and because at first just my hands my wrists were impacted like the first two Mm -hmm. knuckles on either hand like symmetry right as an occupational therapist you know that yeah yeah and so though those were things i was kind of used to already but the elbow was a, a more of a shock that i had to get used to and it was a little traumatic experience and then some years later i had another experience where i was having a flare and I was bedridden for a week. I couldn't get in contact with this doctor again and I didn't know what to do. And I was seeing a functional doctor at the time and they were like, well, I can write you a prescription for Tylenol T3 and all these other things that you can take. So I didn't really know what to do either. And at the time I didn't go to the ER. I probably should have, but I mean, going to the ER is tricky too when you have autoimmune disease because sometimes they do things that are not supposed to be done either. But eventually. You know, I calmed the flare down, but that was also another catalyst to when I had knee damage. So it was just like these massive flares and luckily knock on wood, I don't have them anymore. But those are the two, I think that really sparked my issues in those two joints.
0: Yeah. And I think when yes. I've had these, what I would consider like unnecessary medication delays, like your Enbrel 1 that's happened to me before with Arencia. And I think it's such a helpless feeling to feel like you know exactly what you need at that moment, right? And your doctor knows too, but there's all these barriers. And I know some of them have to do with like ethics, like they want to make sure that they have the correct documentation, but there's like a lack of common sense to some of these barriers where you're like, okay, I've been on this for like, you know, three years. And like, where, where was the failure in the system that made this? happen. And it was, it's not your failure, right? But it's at the end of the day, you're the one that has to suffer. So it's kind of like, I've learned through those experiences that it's like, well, even if it's someone else's job is supposed to be to send in the refill, you as a patient, have to kind of end up double checking. The worst ones are when you need to do blood work. You figure out, oh, wait, we can't renew your prescription until you do blood work. And then you're like, okay, well, it's like Saturday and the labs aren't open or, you know, they're just, I think we've all, at least anyone who's had this disease for more than a few years can just rattle off examples like that. And they add up over time. It's kind of like becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back sometimes.
1: Yeah, and I mean insurances are involved too, as you know, oh, you have yeah. to get preauthorization yeah. and obviously approval for all that. So there's steps that are involved. And I I mean, yeah, I mean now like my rheumatologist and I've had other rheumatologists in the past say, like, do you need any more refills? And yeah. you know, as a patient, yeah, you do need to follow up with that. And I always do. But luckily, like now I think my rheumatologist, she sends in like four months of worth of injections. <laughs> so like the yeah. pharmacy was like sending me like boxes. I was like, Okay, so I have like boxes at home of just injections. Oh, that's (laughs) good. Don't you feel like a pharmacy now? I'm like a little bit. (laughs) It's like having that safety net and that like all your stuff there at home with you is just comforting. If anything does happen, you don't need to worry about
0: it. And I know that some of your experiences with these errors have led you to like, quote unquote, break up with one doctor or like seek another one. Can you, a lot of people I've found out through working with like newly diagnosed patients, a lot of people don't know that you can get a second opinion and you can switch doctors, you know, can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, sometimes they just literally, it's like their first medical experience, right? They might have like, you know, I remember I just went in for my annual physicals, you know, before I got diagnosed with RA and then suddenly you're like a professional patient, you know, (laughs) you don't know the the rules. It's like you've traveled to a new country and no one teaches you the, the rules of this new culture, you know? So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, experiences with quote unquote, breaking up with the doctor or seeking the second opinion.
1: Yeah. I mean, the second opinion came mainly for my parents because I was under, yeah. you know, underage at the time.
0: So they took me obviously to Mayo Clinic. I didn't take myself. Yeah. And- You're like, I demand Mayo Clinic immediately. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, whoa, okay. You're an advocate. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. So that was kind of out of my control. And I didn't really know that you could go and get a second opinion or a third or fourth or fifth at the time, even some people do that. Mm-hmm.
0: But mm-hmm. at
1: this that that point I needed to take action fast. So I couldn't really go to Johns Hopkins or Cleveland mm-hmm. Clinic. And I guess with this doctor that I was seeing, they were he was referred to me by Mio Clinic. And I was with him for several years while I was an emerald. And you know, there was many times I was doing well, and I felt comfortable for a long time. So mm-hmm. I didn't really want to myself find someone else.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: until I started experiencing really bad things, not being able to get in contact with them for the medication. And then yeah, not being able to get in contact with them during a huge flare either. So that was kind of the camel that broke the Whatever. That yeah, thing.
0: I don't even know. broke <laughs> so I mean? camel's back.
1: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I was just like, well, I probably should find someone else. And there were a lot of doctors that I wanted to go see prior to this other doctor, but they weren't taking patients. Mm-hmm. But it just so happened around that time that I found someone new. He was great. And then the person that I did want to see in the beginning years, I recently see now, and she wow. was accepting patients when I needed to switch. When My other doctor was retiring, but yeah, the breakup kind of just happened. I, you know, just hopped and
0: left. I didn't really give them an answer. You don't really have to. You don't. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people feel maybe shy or less confident advocating for themselves. So what advice do you have for patients who are like, oh, I don't, I can't speak up. I don't have the confidence. Like you can do it because you're special. I can't do it. You know, what do you, what would you say to them?
1: I feel anyone can speak up from themselves it really just takes time to go on a self discovery journey and figure out what you need from a doctor and once you find out what you don't need you'll know who is your fit or not if that makes sense if you see it if you meet with yeah. someone the first time and you don't really feel a good vibe or you don't think that they can really help you then you can move on to someone else I feel like the number one thing as a new patient going into all this is to have a family member or a friend that you trust come along with you Sometimes yes. we don't really want people that we know very well around this situation. We get nervous. We don't want to like express our emotions. I know mm-hmm. for me, sometimes I'll be like, no, you guys can stay outside, you know, or like, I didn't really want my mom or my dad to come in. A lot of the times. Mm-hmm. I was a little weird like that, but eventually I let them, you know, come in because I needed someone else there to either take notes, have another ear to, Hear something that maybe I didn't hear and I missed while I was either nervous talking about something or whatever. So mm-hmm. there's always someone that should be there, I feel, to help you and maybe even be like, hey, when you're talking to the doctor, you forgot to mention this. Because that's happened to me several times where I would go in and talk to the doctor and say everything. But then my mom's like, well, you're forgetting this and that, you know, because mm-hmm. before we got there, she's like, make sure you say that. I'm like, I will, I will. And I didn't because I was shy yeah. or nervous yeah. or I wanted to downplay my symptoms.
0: That was the biggest one for me. And I, th- my doctor took her a while to realize and to, for me to realize, like, you know, optimism is a good trait, right, to some degree. But if you're so optimistic, like, oh, I'm hurting more than usual, but it's probably just because I overdid it last week or it's probably just because like I kept making excuses when one of my medications was starting to wear off and it was like I was in denial and I didn't want to yeah. admit because I was nervous about trying a new one so yeah having that relationship and that self-awareness to know like people get afraid of being called a hypochondriac so then you sometimes you actually swing the other direction and you downplay too much you know so my doctor had to realize no like this amount of pain you're in is like not acceptable like i feel we can control your you know disease activity more as opposed to me being like i'll just push through it it's okay you know (laughs) i resonate with that because recently
1: my doctor was like well you're Relatively controlled, but you can be better. And it's up to you if you're going to want to do that. You know, you can stay the way you are, have some residual inflammation and spots around your body, but I know that you can get better and be better. And I know when I downplayed in the beginning years or even sometimes recently, it's because I was afraid to go on another medication. I didn't want to go on that journey again because when we do have to change medications and go on that trial and error journey, it's a lot. And it's traumatic because you have to start anew in a way. And then you get used to your medication that you're taking, but now you have to take something else. And then other times if my test results were doing well, like my CRP, my sed rate real low, they're like, oh, well, but you don't look good. you know. Mm. So that they can kind of tell like, oh, I may say I'm fine, but the test results sometimes show that I was fine, but they, during a physical, can see that I
0: wasn't. So that's yeah. why sometimes they don't always rely on that either. It's like a combination of your self-report in their physical exam and the blood work. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think that takes a while for people to realize is what I've noticed, especially with newly diagnosed, is that we tend to think of like blood work is the most scientific, right? Because it is something that's coming like out of your body. So it's logical to think, oh, well, the blood work is like the most important, but actually even for the diagnosis, they need the family history. They need a physical exam, blood work, and then patient report. That's like four separate pillars. Blood work is just one of those. So in general, like what are some do's and don'ts that you've learned over the years for advocacy or I think a lot of times people for better or for worse, they want to learn from a mistake like is there a mistake you made like what would you do different? or what are some things that worked really really well for you? Like you mentioned you know writing down your questions before an appointment. That's a great thing to help you not kind of get overcome by this feeling of like I just want to downplay my symptoms. you're like, no, I need to say these things. you know is there any other do's and don'ts well, yeah. And it, adding on to what you said, I would
1: say if you write up your questions, keep them out when you go there, like, oh, keep them yeah. because sometimes I have written detailed questions and I would keep it in my pocket and I wouldn't take them out. You know, sometimes, too. sometimes doctors, they are short on time. Some see you for 15 minutes, others 45. Mm-hmm. So if we're running short on time, I didn't want to take them out and then, you know, have them be like, Oh, just you know, do what I just told you to do, you know? So right. I think keeping them out so you can see them and not be nervous to ask, I mm-hmm. think is
0: helpful. Sometimes people think of advocacy as formal, like going to your state or national, and that's, deaf, you know, re- representatives, like going to Washington DC for our national representatives. Or they think of it as like the small moments, like I advocated for myself at this appointment or with my spouse or with my parents. So it is a broad word. But yeah, I know you have experience with the formal advocacy too, talking with your congressmen and stuff like that. So our congresswomen and men. So I would love to hear that too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've done it a a couple times. I'm not like super experienced, but from what I know, like I guess doing your research and being informed prior and taking your notes just like you would with your doctor because it's important that you have all your talking points ready when you go speak to someone about unmet needs Mm -hmm. within your community or your own story so you don't forget anything because they're also a little bit on a time crunch and they talk to many people throughout their days as well, just like doctors do. So in that sense, you know, be short, concise, specific with what you need and just be honest with your story as well, because honesty and authenticity is what matters in our stories as well. You know, you don't need to downplay when you talk to a congressman or a woman, because when they hear your stories, that's when sometimes change can happen. Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing. And, you know, just begin, you don't need really to have a degree in anything or be a specialist and you, you can just be a normal patient as well. You know, sometimes people think when you go and do all that stuff, you need to be an expert, but your story is an expert too. You know,
0: I've, yeah, I remember one of the trainings I did to do to meet with my representatives, they said, you know, everyone thinks that they need to bring all these facts and figures, but the representatives get so tired. Like imagine if you had 15 minute back-to-back meetings for eight hours and each time people were handing you all these charts and graphs and usually eyes would glaze over. So they can say, (laughs) yeah, the personal storytelling is so key. And that's what our brains are kind of wired for, right? Is to listen to stories. So I think that that's it's so key, and, I, and I've asked you in advance to give me some of the, your favorite resources, so I'm gonna put those in the show notes, yes. but can you speak a little bit about other like, um, organizations that you found helpful, like the Arthritis Foundation, not to, trying to give you a leading question here.
1: <laughs> yeah, what? so the Arthritis Foundation is the one that I mainly have worked with when it comes to mm-hmm. my local state legislative levels. Like when I was in college, I interned for them, and then I worked for them a little bit as a PR intern, And that's when I first went down to Springfield, our state capital, and advocated for arthritis. So that was interesting. And then several years went by. I didn't really do much with it anymore. And then, like I had mentioned to you and many others who follow me, Mm -hmm. I had a knee replacement in 2016 that I just – and kind I of was called back into it in a way. And mm-hmm. I ended up finding something called Advocates for Arthritis. And they're based out of the American College, American College of Rheumatology. Mm-hmm. And they have a conference in Washington, D.C. that you can apply for and go talk to people on a federal level. And mm-hmm. that was something I did last September and it was pretty fun. Wait, I was there
0: too. Oh, you were? I think I maybe saw you in line, but I didn't know who you were at the time. Oh <laughs> but- my gosh. That's so funny. Cause that was, and that was my first time doing it too. Yeah, I didn't me know about too. it before. Oh my gosh. <gasps> yeah. I went with my mom actually, and she came with oh. me. And so, yeah,
1: I mean, it was, it was nice to share my story a little bit with the people that we met. It was a little intimidating because I've never done that and that scope because we go go into groups, you know, you, you remember you were yes. like with a doctor or with someone else. But yeah. yeah, like you said, it's, it's nice to bring the facts and figures because that's what they want too. I'm not going to yes. say they don't, yeah. but mm-hmm. also following it up with your own story because otherwise why are you there, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was something really interesting. And then when I was at the Wego Health Conference, I actually learned about, uh, I guess, something called ResistBot Resist Bot by someone who was hosting a panel mm-hmm. advocacy. I think it was Mama's facing forward. Mariah, she shared this because she's really knowledgeable about advocacy and all this. And it's just like a little app that you can literally send representatives in under two minutes a letter, you yeah. know, and that's really nice too. So you don't necessarily need to mail them anything or you don't need to meet with them if you can't physically, because it's not easy to meet with people one-on-one either. And a lot of the times, they're not there. I remember when we you know, we were in Washington DC. I only met one congressman. The others were just the assistants, mm-hmm. you know. So.
0: Yeah. One of the things I learned in one of the trainings is that sometimes the legislative aides or assistants can have the most impact on the legislator or the congressperson. Yes. So it's it's good to make sure that you, you know, approach those meetings with the same energy that you would the other ones. I think it's normal to get disappointed if you can't meet. Like, I, yeah, I didn't get to meet with in, in any of my Washington State actual reps in DC. I have met with one of mine in her local office. It's a lot easier to get local meetings yes. when they're not in session. But yeah, you know, I was never personally, like, Into politics. I mean, I would follow it, but it wasn't like my personal passion is politics and political engagement. And so I feel like I've really gotten into it as a patient, but I never would have expected, like, you know, 20 years ago, if you told me, like, you're going to be going to Washington D.C. every couple of years, (laughs) and are you the same, or were you already kind of interested in? Oh no, I was the same. Okay, I, I, you know, I mean, like, obviously, I was always like philanthropic. I didn't Mm -hmm. uh, all that stuff, but I didn't really myself obviously going to Washington DC either. For me, I've always been interested in the personal stories, like the psychology behind everything. And so then you realize, well, if if your goal in life is to help people and some of their barriers are through the laws and the, the regulations like around things like insurance companies, then you do have to kind of step up to formal advocacy to help yourself and help others. But yeah, at first I found it very intimidating. And what this is sorry, I'm going to my story now, but one of the things was that I didn't want to quote unquote offend anyone. And I know that's kind of like a now people are see that standpoint as like being very problematic. And I, I think it was, you know, and now it's like, well, you getting liked or not liked is not as important as using your platform and like sharing your voice you know but it's an evolution for for all of us yeah (laughs) and you know i i do want to get to some of this invisible illness um areas because i think it it dovetails really nicely because when you have an invisible illness you do have to do a lot of, of this informal advocacy like on a daily basis right to explain to people well you don't look sick but i you are sick right So can you tell me a little bit more about like what inspired you to do your invisible illness projects?
1: Yeah. So as we know, rheumatoid arthritis is an invisible illness. Many of us don't show symptoms. (laughs) Okay. I was like the epitome of a person with an invisible illness for several years. No one could ever really know I had an illness because I quote unquote looked healthy, looked good. So for many years, I didn't really tell people my illness at all, Mm -hmm. except for close family members and close friends. I didn't really want anyone knowing, you know, I know that I worked at the arthritis foundation when I was in college, but that's about it. No one of my college friends outside of few knew either. Mm -hmm. So it was something I kind of wanted to keep a secret, I guess, because I wasn't ready to really share. And I guess it just comes with the accepting part too. Once you kind of accept yourself and everything that's going on, you start sharing things when you go through things you start wanting to elaborate more and connect with others. And that's kind of what led to my invisible film project because in 2009 or eight, when I was commuting to school, like I told you, I wasn't living at the dorms. I took the train and here in Chicago. We have something called the Metro train. So I was waiting to go on to the platform and I, it was a really early day. It was like 7am. So it was morning rush hour. I parked Mm -hmm. my car in front of the train station, and I kind of popped out with and slung my backpack over my shoulder, and then there's three little steps that you kind of have to go on to get to the platform, Mm -hmm. and I did that, and whoever saw me probably was like, she's faking it, she doesn't have a disability, she's not ill, whatever, and they called the cops. It wasn't a confrontation per se, but I made the film to be that way because Eventually I, I, as I got into advocacy, like, you know, a decade later or whatever I, or several years later, I started connecting with others and they had similar stories to mine, but some of these people were actually harassed, met yeah. in person with the other, and they were fighting or they had like really nasty messages le- left on their window shield mm-hmm. of their car. So I felt called to share this story because it, my situation happened when I was in college, like 10 years ago. And I felt really shocked that it was happening now, even worse.
0: Yes, yes. So that's what
1: called me to create that.
0: And I've seen stories, and I think now because maybe it's because cell phone cameras and videos are so much better that people are, they'll take a picture of someone who's walking away from their car. And they have a disability placard and they'll say, they're not in a wheelchair. They must be faking. And they'll like plaster that everywhere on social yeah. media and write terrible notes. Yeah, it's really, really problematic. And so, you know, it sounded like you were able to, at the WeGo Health Conference, get different advocates to share, you know, things that they wished people knew about invisible illness, which is so powerful.
1: They're not only rheumatoid arthritis patients, they're, you know, people who've survived cancer, multiple sclerosis and other... Yeah situations. And yeah, so I mean, if anyone is listening to this, and they want to get involved in advocacy or get involved in these type of communities, just reach out on Facebook, join a group, even sign up for alerts to get your local you know, newsletter for when Mm -hmm. your legislators are free to talk to and all that stuff. So everything can be online. You don't have to meet with anyone in person,
0: you know, for better, for worse, the current pandemic has made that even (laughs) easier in many ways. But yeah, I think something that I realized is that, you know, you don't have to be the expert. You don't have to do all the research on like each issue that you're advocating for the foundations, like the Arthritis Foundation and the American College of Rheumatology. They already, they have like staff members that watch this stuff. And they give you your bullet points and talking points. So it, yeah, you don't have to do it alone is definitely yes. a major point. And what are some things in general for people with arthritis, everyone from, you know, occupational physical therapists to like rheumatologists to primary care and, and, you know, alternate naturopaths, anyone you're paying for them to provide healthcare to you. What, what are some things you wish that they knew or did better? I feel some
1: can be more better listeners and a little (laughs) bit more compassionate. I know not every doctor is like that. Some are more cut and dry and they just give you the prescription and they just expect you to take the medication, but not everyone is seasoned like that. Like I had said, not everyone also loves tough love from strangers. We're all different with how the disease impacts us, but also our personalities are different, how we're made up you know, mentally and emotionally, not everyone can be like, oh, yes, I'm going to take the medicine. I'm going to beat this. Some people really get impacted by a diagnosis and they feel like their whole life is over and they give up. So I feel like talking to a patient as a patient and not just like another number or a list on your, you know, of who you're seeing that day is important. Like I, when I went to Mayo Clinic, when I had seen one of the head doctors, they scared me a little bit. And so yeah. I feel like that maybe was also a catalyst for me as to not wanting to take a certain medication like methotrexate, for instance. I know so many people out there yeah. do not want to take that because of the side effect and how it's marketed or what people say about it. But that's like one of the medicines that's helped me the most, you know, out of everything. Yeah. So just, I feel like explaining things as well is helpful. You know, mm-hmm. we're not, A lot of patients are not medical professionals, neither are their families. So it's really important to talk to them and explain, hey, this is why you need to take this medication. This is why your cytokines are impacting your body or whatever else, you know, Mm -hmm. that we may not understand. Talk to us so we can get it. And then we can take action, you know, because not a lot of people know why they're given these medications and why they can help you live a better life.
0: They're just told what they can do negatively to you. And that's not always the case. It's such a complex emotional and psychological experience to start a drug. For for most people I found, yeah. I was kind of the weird one who was like, I, I think I was just so used to being medically gaslit that I was like, oh suddenly now you believe me, like I'm going to seize this moment and do whatever you want me to do because you believe me now. And it was, anyway, there's a whole psychology <laughs> to that. But most people now, and there wasn't the internet, wasn't the same thing back in 2000. That's another podcast show. Yeah, that is totally, totally. You know, having a doctor that that you feel comfortable opening up to and being vulnerable with about like maybe your own mistakes or your own fears. Like I remember, so I've had this for 17 years. Like I teach classes to people on how to manage it, but I, I'm not perfect. Like, you know, and I'm the first to admit that. And I remember telling my doctor, I'm like, I'm sorry, can you just remind me what this acronym stands for? My blood work? Because I just totally can't remember. And like, I forgot why it's important. It's like, I have to be able to feel comfortable with her to be like, I don't want you to think I'm stupid, but I'm just going to like be honest. And she's like, no, my gosh, like yeah, this is like my job full time, but like you're, you know, you're not reading blood work every day, you know? So, so yeah, having that comfort is is super, super important. I just wanted to add on like, as a freelance writer, sometimes I'm assigned topics on these types of like
1: serious things and I'm not an expert either. So I sometimes, even if I wrote an article about, you know, sed rate or CRP that was assigned to me and I researched and it was medically reviewed by a doctor, I still find myself asking, you know those questions yeah. you know and I feel like you need someone to explain that to you who knows and study that the internet sometimes mm-hmm. doesn't always tell the truth and it's just because someone had a bad experience it doesn't mean you will either
0: totally oh that is a whole other episode yeah one of the things I'm passionate about explaining to patients is something in statistics called representativeness which is like how much does someone else's result represent what you may or may not get because if you just go on a Facebook group and are like how'd you guys do a methotrexate? It might, the people's responses might not represent at all. They may be people who are, it might not represent what you might experience at all. There may be people who were diagnosed in 1984. Their joints didn't have the same chance that you did if you were diagnosed in 2018, you know? So, but people, if you don't understand that history and that nuance And also the people who are doing well in methotrexate, like me for the first five years, I wasn't on any groups because I didn't need to be because I was feeling good. You know, so there's this kind of silent majority sometimes who aren't saying anything because they're doing well. But, you know, one of the things that we all have to contend with as well is kind of the general public's misunderstandings about arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis in particular. Is there anything you would want the general public to know? Yeah. So
1: we always hear that you're not too young to get arthritis, right? And it's not an old people disease. But as I was thinking about this question the other day, I don't know if it's because I was looking at my supplements and my medication for whatever reason right beforehand, but it was how arthritis is so expensive. I don't know if the society really understands that. You know, disability is like number one here in the United States, States, I think I read. Mm -hmm. And and it, it impacts so many. And I just was thinking about how much I... Paid for supplements, how much doctor's appointments cost when they don't have insurance coverage to cover those appointments, right? And then mm-hmm. our medications, if you don't have a copay or financial assistance, you're paying thousands of dollars a month. Mm-hmm. And who knows, even the whole amount, which could be up to like 30,000, who knows, 80,000, I don't know the numbers, but it's around there.
0: Yeah. Mine, know. my healthcare last year was $70,000 was charged like for my healthcare. Like, I didn't pay $70,000, Yeah, but you know, that's what it costs. And that was like a very, that was just to insurance and yeah, not, not to include the over-the-counter things or the daily life aids that I've bought in order to help me function. So I think that's such a brilliant point. I mean, one of my like passions is, is like, saying it's not just joint pain. It's not just joint pain. You know, yeah. it affects every part of your life and in, including finances. It could be a down payment. Like you said, you know, an email to me. Yeah. It's such a good yeah. point. Yeah. The down payment. Yeah. And I'm on disability. So with that, I
1: had to send in proof of how much I was paying and I, you know, I've had totals and I was just like, yeah, it could be a down payment for a house or an apartment. It's ridiculous.
0: Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to share about and anything on topic or off topic about you, your story or yes. any Anything else? If you're newly diagnosed, do your research. Don't be
1: scared to get on treatment and connect with your community. Always reach out to anyone. Cheryl's a good resource. And <laughs> Thank you. If you ever need to talk to you someone, too. I'm here too. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So. I mean, it really is a community and I feel like in the last year even, you know, again, I've had this for 17 years, but you're continuously making more connections. Like I feel like I've made so many new, like genuine, you know, friendships and connections with other patients and advocates. It's really one of the things that can be a positive that can come out of this, you know, not to force yourself to think positive, but just, it is something that you can enjoy connecting with other patients and learning from each other. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to check out my latest courses and resources on MyArthritisLife.net. This podcast is brought to you by the Beginner's Guide to Life with Rheumatoid Arthritis, a four-week online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people with inflammatory arthritis learn everything they need to know to navigate the social, emotional, physical, and logistical challenges of rheumatoid arthritis and related diseases. The next group is going to start in August, 2020. Learn more at myarthritislife.net or bit.ly slash arthritis course, all in lowercase. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.